Hey guys, don't forget about this month's fitness challenge run by Hunt Lift Eat Official. Uh, we're doing a ruck challenge, um, and what we're doing is 35 pounds for men, 25 pounds for women, November 7th through the 13th, as many miles as you can ruck. That's it. I mean, the concept is real simple, as many miles as you can ruck. Um, in the winter, we're going to have tons of prizes uh, for our top 10 winners um, from all over the place. We've got some awesome sponsors involved, um, and all of the proceeds uh, of the money that we raise through this challenge is going to go to Noden's Outdoors. Um, definitely check them out. They uh, are an awesome charity. They provide a unique outdoor therapy program to special operations uh, veterans transitioning um, from the military out, out of the military um, through bow hunting and uh, through archery. So fantastic organization. We're proud to be partnering with them. Um, so go check them out. You can get signed up um, at thehuntlifteat.com. Um, go to Huntlifteat Official on Instagram and the link is in the bio. So we hope to see you guys out there. Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt Lift Eat podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years, and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses, and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator, and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field, and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com, reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast. I'm Carter McKenzie, uh, running host tonight with a couple special co-hosts who haven't been on in a hot minute. We got Perry. What's going on, Perry? Not much, man. Real excited for uh, for tonight. Glad to be here. Heck yeah, man. And we got the one and only Ron Jitter coming at us from the great state of Louisiana. Recent addition to Louisiana, but I'm Recent. happy to be talking duck hunting finally. That's right. Recent addition. I know you've been itching for uh, for this episode, man. And uh, I know you're obsessed with duck hunting, which is the reason why you're here. And uh, we got an awesome guest tonight that we've been really looking forward to having on. Um one uh, that kind of fortuitously came came along. So we got uh, Chef uh, Jean-Paul Bourgeois coming on, uh, you know, shoot straight, come hungry, duck camp dinners, the man himself. What's going on, Chef? What's up, guys? Look, those two years of high school French did you well, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would pay off. I knew it. Right there, man. <laughs> Just slid it right on in. So congratulations on that. Thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. This is... uh. This is awesome. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a long time. So, yeah, I appreciate you you taking the time to be on here with us. Heck yeah, man. Uh, glad to do it. And, you know, um, happy to talk a little duck hunting and content creating, cooking with y'all, whatever you want to do. I'm open book and uh, happy again. Just thanks for having me on, making the time. I know we had some scheduling conflicts over the last, I mean, I wouldn't say scheduling conflicts, but it took a little bit to get this date on. Um, so I appreciate you being flexible with me. Well, we're flexible for you, man. No, not a problem here, but let's jump, let's jump right into it, man. Why don't, why don't you give us, uh, you know, give listeners a quick kind of rundown, uh, who, who you are chef and who you are and what you do. Yeah. Well, um, I'm originally, my name's chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois. I, um, originally from Louisiana. I currently live in Texas, uh, right outside of Houston, um, and, um, born in Louisiana, classically trained at culinary school, John Falls Culinary Institute, spent some time in California, professionally cooking, spent some time overseas in France cooking, spent some time in St. Thomas, and most recently spent some time over, over a decade in New York City doing my thing there, um, have always hunted waterfowl since I was eight or nine years old. Uh, my dad was a big waterfowl hunter in Louisiana. That's like really the only thing he enjoyed doing. I, he, he enjoyed doing all of them, but that's the only thing he, you know, bought gear for, had a boat for, stuff like that. He was he was hunting ducks. Um, so started doing that at a young age, stuck with me all through my, you know, uh, preteen years and teen years in high school and in college. And kind of once I moved out, of Louisiana, I'd be, I disconnected from it a little bit just because I was a, you know, a working chef. I had an ambitious culinary career, and I didn't live in Louisiana anymore, so I wasn't plugged into the waterfowl community in those states and regions like I was in my home state. Um, and um, 
you know, towards the end of my career in in New York, which is about three years ago, is when I stepped away from a traditional restaurant kitchen. I really started diving deeper into long storytelling content and formats of, in media, whether that be digital, like we're doing right now, or trying to get into some linear distributions and so on. Uh, mostly everything I do is involving cooking, whether I'm, I'm in the outdoors uh, doing stuff. I'm, I'm usually the the camp cook, uh, no matter where I go. And I have been all my life, which is why Doug Camp Dinners just kind of made sense for me. And um, that's about it, man. I got a seven-month-old named Parish Cole Bourgeois. And um, he's, a, he's a tank. I guess he takes after me. He's got like my upper body already. Uh, so uh, <laughs> he uh, he keeps me on my toes and it's kind of giving me a new perspective on what it means to love what you do in your career, love what you do in your pastimes. You know, you want to be the best version of yourself for those, for, for people like him and his mom, right? And so you do the things you love because you know they're going to make you a better better man, a better person. And that's, that's kind of where I'm at these days. That's awesome, man. It's funny how how once you bring a little one into the equation, it like it changes that whole perspective. And it's like, man, that focus gets a little bit more intensified. And and whatever it is you're doing, if you can find that passion, you know, having having that little one to look down, you know, down at, it it really does change things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I hope he shares the same loves uh, that I have. You know, that's that's going to be up to him in the long run. Um, I, I. I think that, uh, you know, I thought I was busy before I had a child and um, now I have one and I'm like, where did, what did I do with all my time before I I had a kid? Uh, I don't, I don't understand how that happens, uh, but I get it now. And, uh, but you're right. It does the time that you do have to work and kind of hone in and be creative. They're precious to be, you know, and you go ahead and try to dive into all that because, you know, at any time, your attention is going to have to sway to another another little humans that that's dependent on you. So uh, it's been great, man. Um, definitely a blessing. But it's I would tell any new dad out there like you'll it's it's awesome. A lot of love doing it. Like but it's hard. You know, like I wish somebody would just look me in the eyes and like putting their hand on my shoulder and just be like, it's fucking hard, guy. You know, like you I mean, it's a. You know, sorry, I, I don't. But like, I kind of wish somebody would just said that to me. Uh, I knew it was going to be difficult, but you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's a blessing, but it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done so far. You know. Yeah, it's a labor of love for sure. Yeah, but it uh, it's the greatest change that my life's ever experienced. Sure. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, congratulations to you. That's outstanding. But uh, let's. I mean, let's start at the beginning. You said you you know grew up Louisiana. Um, yeah. And watching your show, I, w- I want to, of course, unpack Duck Camp dinners for sure. But I've kind of become enamored with coastal Louisiana now. Like I'm I'm kind of obsessed and kind of jealous that I didn't yeah. get to grow up in, in that kind of environment. You had you had so much at your fingertips with regards to the to the outdoors and with regards to like culture, not just from mm-hmm. a culinary perspective, which you showed as a fantastic job, you know, showing, but how would you describe, you know, coastal Louisiana, um, maybe to. Yeah. I mean, look, there, there, there's no other place like it. There's places like the low country in Charleston or uh, coastal Savannah, even coastal Florida, Apalachicola, even the Tampa area share some resemblances, some just like little bit, um, but there's really no place like uh, coastal Louisiana. And when I say that, we often t- refer to that as I-10 on south, uh, as we refer to the Cajun coastline. So everything from, you know, that New Orleans area in east and all the way to Cameron Parishes and I-10 before you get into Texas. And in that coastline, uh, you can find one of the most historical, intact, r- true regional cuisines of America. Uh, there is no other place in the country in that small little strip of land still has such a strong thumbprint of a cuisine that has been around since the the settlement of the in the Louisiana Purchase. Um, you know, if you think about places like Santa Fe in the Southwest, or you think about the New England states, you're, t- you're talking about three, two, and three different states put together. And both of those sections, that's about the closest you get to like a food culture that is somewhat like 
coastal Louisiana in terms of its roots, but it's really not even close. It's just dense and compact, uh, just priming with history and food culture. When you grow up in a place like that, being a chef, learning how to cook, uh, honoring what's at the table, both both whether you got it from the grocery store or, or wild game uh, that you hunted or fish, it doesn't matter. It's 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 the honor at the table and, and who's around it with you. That comes from being in a place like I grew up. I didn't understand that until I moved away. And I think that goes for a lot of folks. Also didn't understand that kind of access I had to hunting and fishing. Um, when I was eight or nine years old, my parents allowed me and my friend to pull a 14 foot P-Rog over two acres of of land across the busy highway and launch it into Bayou Lafourche and spend eight hours out there just setting jug lines for catfish and catfish and perch jerking by ourselves. And like now that I have a son, I'm thinking to myself like, man, I don't know if I'd feel very comfortable <laughs> doing that from an eight or nine year old with a friend in a boat like you know, we're taking the life jackets off when we, you know, right. when we're out of sight from the parents. Yep. And it's not like it was any, you know, they didn't have a ton of boat track. Anyways, my point is that that was like at a very young age, I was doing that and using my, you know, my first air, air uh, pellet air rifle with a little Simmons scope on it to hunt squirrels out of the trees, like <laughs> setting setting uh, foot traps for possum and raccoons in the in the ditches that surrounded the cane fields in my backyard, like. Those were things that I did that I thought was just normal for. And those are things that all my, a lot of my friends did too with by themselves or with family or friends, just like leisurely after, after dinner or, you know, on a Saturday afternoon to walk the woods and search for a couple of squirrels. To, so your dad can clean them for you. Uh, that was, that's just how I grew up and we grew up hunting ducks, be able to wake up at, you know, five o'clock, roll out of bed, be at a boat launch at 20 minutes, be at a duck blind in 15 minutes, shoot a limit, and then be back like my dad did in a courtroom by nine o'clock. And um, that was 58 days out of the year, you know, um, 600, 800 ducks later, you know, it's just that. And again, did not just figured you know, most people were like that and come to find out they aren't. And that's what's been really good to kind of showcase um, in duck camp dinners is just your the Louisiana access to the outdoors. It's called the sportsman's paradise for a reason. You know, you better do that in a duck blind. You better go bass fishing in that same area to go catch, you know, um, redfish and speckled trout an hour and a half from where I grew up and then go offshore to catch like you saw maybe in today's episode. Going to you know snapper and wahoo fishing right out of Venice from thirty mile boat ride. You know it's like you just can't find anywhere else like that. You know um, when you talk about a cast and blast in Texas, you're like, <laughs> all right, we're gonna go shoot some divers and some teal. You know it's <laughs> like, um, and and then maybe catch some speckled trout. Like we're talking, you know, I think love Texas, love the outdoors here, and they do. It, it, that's about coastal Texas, about as close as I think you can get to the Louisiana coastal side. Uh, and how it, how the access to it, but just Texas so darn big, doesn't matter where you li live everywhere. It takes two or three hours to get to a duck blind or, you know, a fishing hole or something. Yeah. That sounds like what you're describing right there is like John Ritter's like dream of growing up like that. <laughs> it, I mean, it's actually, it's pretty similar except for, instead of walking across two acres of marsh, I was walking across two acres of ice and I don't even have a son yet. And I'm like, man, my, I used to fight my mom to the death to let me go duck hunting with my friend dragging a canoe mm -hmm. half a mile across ice, you know, where obviously the life jacket was still in the canoe, like you yeah. said, you know, and I don't even have a son yet. And I'm like, that is insane. I cannot yeah. believe I convinced her to let me do that. Yeah, no, it's crazy, man. It's, uh, I'd like to think I'm going to be trustworthy enough, uh, of my son to do that. I don't know how they were more trustworthy. I think they just figured like, you know, I wasn't going to stay inside and watch TV or play with Legos, although I was pretty good at playing with Legos. I was pretty good at building <laughs> helicopters and stuff. But, you know, I really wanted to be outside with a pellet rifle and shooting cans, you know, shooting amp, you right. know, shooting crawfish uh, chimneys. You ever seen those? We used to we used to use those as target practice, you know, like and, um, you know, that's again, it's just how I grew up. We just surrounded by food, surrounded by the outdoors, 
I don't ever remember a box of pizza or a box of chicken or microwave meals. Not saying there's anything wrong with that. I just don't recall any of that. And so my food recollection memories are always of my mom cooking, my dad cooking, us going to other families where they were all cooking and gathering and communing. Uh, And that's just basically obviously snowballed into how I see food and how I experience food and how I expose friends to cooking and cooking to friends and so on. And it's just, uh, it's, you know, it's really my love language, to be honest with you. It's, it's how I show somebody I care. Uh, it's my, it's the, it's the gift that God gave me that I can pass on to others through, through my creations. And, and I hope it blesses them like it's blessed me. I mean, that's just as simple as it gets. Who would you say, you know, in the house, you said both your parents were, were the cooks or uh, as well. And, are you almost forced in that culture? It's like you don't have a choice, right? You're surrounded by such an abundance of, of yeah. food that could possibly be in your table. You're like almost forced to care immensely about the food and the culture that goes into, you know, this abundance of wildlife that you can have right there. Yeah. But did, you know, your parents kind of share that role or was one more prominent than the other? You know, I would say, um, I would say that I can recall a lot of my friends, a lot of my dad's friends coming over and like for different, again, parties that they would throw at the house or whatever. And they would say to me, boy, if you you can learn how to cook half as good as your dad, you're going to be in good shape. You know, and and now like, you know, he it's we're totally not the same anymore, if you know what I mean. Um, so he definitely had that effect on me. I think my mom just, you know, always keeping us fed. And what was really important about that so many times we would be sitting down for dinner or about to sit down for dinner and a friend of my sister, a friend of mine or a friend of my parents would walk into the back door and it would almost be automatic, like fix yourself a plate, come have dinner with us. And that back door was always open for people uh, to come visit, to come eat, to come hang, you know, whatever we, it was. Um, and that, that, that really set a standard in me too, just to always have a a place at the table, even if there wasn't place at the table to always have one available. If something like that came, came about, I would say about Louisiana, like you see this in duck camp dinners for these first five episodes. Uh, there's a, they all know how to cook. All of my friends know how to cook. Uh, they're all really good cooks. Uh, they may not have like the repetition that I have when it comes to cooking professionally or maybe some of the, um, some of the know-how in terms of a lot of the ethnic kind of foods that I like to cook with and flavors that I like to, but when it comes to Cajun food and the food of Louis, Southern Louisiana, them boys know how to cook. And uh, you don't need to be a chef or go to a classic culinary school when you grow up in Louisiana, because to your point, doesn't matter. Like if you got the gene of cooking or not, you grow up around it. And if, if you don't know how to cook it well, you appreciate people that do and honor and and so on. So, um, you know, it's a, it's an important part of the culture. It continues to be uh, no matter where in the state actually, but that coastal Louisiana part is, that's where it's at, man. I was, I was going to say when you, uh, when you left and you went to pursue this, this formal, you know, technical career in the culinary arts and then started traveling all over the country and, and setting up shop in different places. I imagine, you know, you were, training behind different chefs did uh how much exposure did you get to you know if any was you know was this was this cajun style of cooking taught and was it taught correctly you know did or did you have to go to some you know some professionally trained chef and say hey uh, that's not quite the way we do things back home uh-huh. well so when I, I went to culinary school at the john false Culinary Institute at Nickel State University. And so John Falls is one of the leading authorities in Cajun Creole food in the country. Uh, he taught us Cajun food, the classes of Cajun Creole food. Now, I didn't quite need any classes to learn Cajun Creole food. Again, you grow up around that and, and you know, you're but it's, it's good to learn from somebody in a, in a professional way how to produce some of these dishes in large scale. Look, let's take New York City, for example. I mean, I don't know, something like 9 million people in all five boroughs or something like that. Basically, you can find authentic food from anywhere in the world 
in one of those five boroughs, if not in multiple of places in those five boroughs. I mean, anywhere in the world. I mean, you can there's countries that you've never even heard of that you can't pronounce that have whole streets and blocks dedicated to communities from those countries living there and creating restaurants and stuff. It's, it's just crazy. However, I can't think of one good Cajun restaurant in New York City. They do not exist. I do not believe there's glimpses of them <laughs> on menus. Um, like, like you could find a good barbecue restaurant in, in New York City. There's some good ones that have popped up over the last decade. And they may have something like Cajun E on it, but nothing like the food that I grew up with. And I think that's a, re- I think there's a reason for that. Um, I, I, and I'm not exactly sure what that region is, what that reason is. It's just, I don't find it's been recreated like a lot of other, and I, I consider Cajun food an ethnic food. And I don't find it's been recreated like a other, like a lot of other ethnic foods, like in the Southeastern Asian, you know, arena of Thai and Vietnamese and Taiwanese and Indian and Bangladeshian and Indonesian. Like, there's really great representations of those cuisines all around, all around through New York, New York, all around in in Houston, in Texas. I mean, we're right there by Louisiana. Still, it just there's just something missing from most places outside of, of the state. And maybe it's one of those like experiential things where, you know, you're not there. It tastes kind of like it, a little like it, but because you're not there, you're just missing some of that. And I don't, maybe there's, you know, in, in the, in the voodoo culture, they would say maybe there's a little of that grigri. And that means just, it's almost like a little spell or a little voodoo that it has on you. And sometimes that's kind of what it feels like. Like there's something about being in Louisiana, eating in Louisiana and experiencing it through that whole, the holistically what it's like to eat and dine and commune in that state. Maybe that's the little little grigri that state has over people that do it. And then you can't replicate that in other places. That's maybe, maybe uh, mostly false, but maybe a little true. I think also just, I haven't been here this long and I'm, I've only lived in Louisiana for a few months, but where are you, by the way? Because like Lake Charles area. Yeah, I mean, see, you're on the cusp. You're on the yeah, cusp. I'm on the cusp. Not, you're on the cusp of not being like really Louisiana. I can dip in out a little bit. <laughs> no, you're good. We hunted a good bit in Cameron and Calcasieu parishes uh, in, in season two, which you'll see, um, which you'll see in uh, episode six and seven. If you awesome. are in Lake Charles, have you been to Guillory's Famous Foods yet? I have not. Write that okay. down, John. I'm, I have got the phone out. <laughs> Guillory's Famous Foods. Go there and get the um, soft and spicy cracklings. The uh, The barbecue, the plate lunches, all they have some really good food there. But every time I come from Texas to Louisiana, Louisiana, Texas, I make a stop at Guillory's. There's no other place in my in my knowledge in Louisiana that serves this, this crackling in this way. And it's called soft and spicy cracklings. Check it out. You'll see it if you don't go before next a week from today. You'll see it on episode six of Duck Camp Dinners. <laughs> All right, appreciate it. But as I was saying, because I'm from Western New York originally, so I've cool. been to the city a lot, yeah. and I feel like just the, the cult. If anybody who really likes the culture down here, which is it seems like most people, I don't really know how many. You got to be in the vast majority of people who are even willing to tolerate New York City for more than six mm. days at a time which is probably stunting the growth of Cajun food in the five boroughs. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, New York, and I'm not sure exactly if I'm, if I'm going to say what you're getting at here, but a lot of the times people say they go to New York city. You and I know both know that New York city does not speak for all the whole state of New York. In fact, that little like dot that intersects with New Jersey and Pennsylvania right. and Long Island, like a little dot, you know, um, although it makes up a large portion of the population of the state, you know, the rest of the state has nothing, uh, nothing like it. And I think that you find more in common with the foods outside of New York and like a lot of those rural agricultural country areas you find more in common there than you would with anything that tries to be Cajun food 
in New York City because the bones of Cajun food is built from the working class, blue collar, you exactly. know, use the resources that you have, if very seasonal, uh, but not fancy, you know. And um, and like New Orleans, like Louisiana, a lot of people go to Louisiana. Where are they going to fly into? New Orleans. And that represents a very small part of what Louisiana life and food and culture is. An important part of it, because great food in, in New Orleans, great music, great culture, incredible scene, but it really does not speak for the rest of the state. In fact, even New Orleanians know that we're not Cajun. You know, they'll, they'll say, like, this isn't Cajun country. That's somewhere else. This is New Orleans, you know. And um, it's a it's one of those things that when people say, going to Louisiana for a week, what should I do? Where should I eat? And I say, well, spend your two or three days in New Orleans and then go out, get a rent a car, head west, hit some of those hit some of those Cajun, those Acadian parishes of Calcasieu and Cameron and Lafayette and uh, St. Mary's and all that stuff uh, along the coastline and really get to experience a lot of what Cajun culture has to offer. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I completely agree. I haven't moved around the country a lot, just knowing I've lived in, I think I've moved like six times in the last 10 years. Every state has like their New York City, their New Orleans, you know, like their, their place that people fly into. And like you, if you if you get off the grid, you can really get into some great cultures in, in areas just an hour from that major airport hub that you never knew existed. But I don't, I don't want to hijack this conversation and make it all about me, but we got a duck hunter, damn it. I want to talk about duck hunting. Yeah. So can you, in your own words, because I think it's fair to say that the, the waterfall community is very passionate, but it's still smaller than the big game community and the deer hunting community. What is it to you? Cause I've, I've already preached this to everybody probably a thousand times, but from a different perspective, like why is duck hunting so fantastic? Yeah. I mean, I think I see a lot of parallels in it with food and with, um, the community that happens at the dinner table. Uh, and I think what I see is that same type of community that happens in a duck blind. I don't know about you, but I've never been on many other hunts and pursuits where you can get four, six, 18 of your friends in an A-frame and drink coffee and cook breakfast and smoke cigs and cut up and tell jokes and still hunt and have a good time and provide meat for your family. Like you doesn't have to be like, all serious, all the time, very technical, which way is the wind blowing? Do I, you know, haven't washed my clothes for eight months because I don't want to smell like fabric softener. Like, I don't know, like there's, there's a little part of me that looks at the community of the outdoors and the hunting and hunting community specifically and says, when did we stop having fun while we hunt, while we were outdoors? Like, when did it all just become about this very technical pursuit of something? I understand, trust me, I like, I do a lot of work with Meat Eater, a lot of folks in Western big game stuff, a lot of stalking, stalking, archery things. You know, um, I, I think that's cool. There's a lot that I've learned from those folks. But I also never want to lose sight that this is fun to me. And um, I, you know, I can't control the ducks. I can't control the weather. I can't control migration patterns, but I can control the people that I hang out with and that are at that duck camp. And that's what makes it special for me is that I can do it with my best friends. I can do it with my family. Uh, I can still provide good meat, good substance for, you know, when I come back home for, for the year and so on. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I like to go out into a deer stand or a box, you know, a, um, a box stand or a, you know, a ground blind and, and wait out, you know, a doe or a buck or whatever that walks out in the evening or in the, you know, first light in the morning. I like that time of stuff too, but I'm there for, I'm there for one meat deer and then I'm out and I'm going back to the duck blind because that's where I like to have my fun. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I agree with you hundred <laughs> percent. I think until you experience it, it's just not until you experience like that duck blind atmosphere with all of your best friends. And it's like you said, it's not, it's fun. And I, when I think about you know, I chase deer and turkey all year, but mm. comparatively, I hate it. Like mm. duck hunting is just so yeah. fun. It's so enjoyable. Like you said, you're with your friends. You don't have to worry about scent control. You know, anybody who has dogs, it's awesome watching the dogs work. And yeah. those guys actually enjoy training their dog more than they do pulling the trigger. Yeah. Um, I agree. Just brings what's, an element to hunting. That's, 
What's your answer? Was your answer similar to the one? I tell everyone the exact same thing. It's like, I don't, I don't have to worry about scent control. I can laugh. You know, you spend more time, you know, literally just doing this. You know, it's like you're on a podcast, hanging out with your friends, bullshitting with six. It's like, I call it redneck golf because you you can drink, you can smoke, whatever. Uh, And then you shut up for like 20 seconds, calling some birds. You have your fun. You make fun of your friends who missed them in it. You just can't do that. Every other form of hunting is, if it's not solitary, you're quiet and yeah. stealthy. You know, yeah. you might be with somebody else, but you're not, you're not bullshitting yeah. like you are in a duck blind. Yeah. I think what we've, what we've saw in duck camp dinners, and you can go into the comment sections of any episode and see this just like littered throughout the comment sections is that the reason why non-waterfowl hunters shoot, not even non-hunters in general, but the reason why you see a lot of mule deer hunters and elk hunters and ice camp, like people who like to ice fish, they see the same thing in that camp, right? Because if even if you if you have an elk camp or a moose camp or whatever, like you're likely have like a little cabin or even just a set of tents or mobile homes that are backed up into this space that have a camp to it. And right. that's where you get your community from. So even though like you don't, even though there's a lot of people out there, they like to go out and be silent and stealthy and take those, take those trips with one or two people, um, you know, in the back country, they typically come back to a base camp and tell stories and do those same things that we do on duck camp dinners. And that's why I think it struck a chord with not just waterfowl hunters, but just hunters in general, because it, it reminds them, I'm serious. It, it, we forget, we, totally as a, as a community, as an organization, as a m- media money-making merchandising machine have forgotten that it's fun. And it do, you, you can, you don't have to be in a duck blind to do that. You just got to have the right people that do it with you, you know? And um, that's why I like, that's why, you know, outdoorsmen, even when they have bad season and they haven't, shot a mule deer in two years or whatever, they still go to camp and try because they know at the very least they're going to have a good time with their friends that they may have not seen all year, or maybe they see every weekend, you know? Um, and it, and what ends up happening is like, man, if we have a great duck hunt or you shoot that trophy whitetail, that's just the icing on the cake. You know what I mean? And I think that's just what, um, what a lot of folks who watch the show kind of relate to um because you're right there's only about nine hundred and fifty thousand duck stamps sold in america every year that's an incredibly small number nine not even a million duck stamps and so i think we get caught up being waterfowl hunters because most people that we hang out with know or waterfowl hunters we start to think that oh well everybody duck hunts or goose hunts it's not the case majority of this you know majority hunters to your point are whitetail hunters and uh you know, I think they can still find a lot of relations in, in duck camp dinners and in our own community. Man, you're, you're speaking to me right there because I'm, that's, that's me to a T. I, I grew up a whitetail hunter period, full stop. I've to this day, I've never been duck hunting. John's been, John's been coming up to our deer camp, um, on our family farm for, for several years now. And he's, he's preached that exact same message to us that, that you just said is like, man, it's just different. But, but watching your show and watching that duck camp dinners, that that camaraderie that community aspect of coming around you know the the harvest the the food um the bullshit and just all of that man it's so even for me that's that's never done it it's like man i can totally i I was thinking about all the all the times at deer camp and uh i tell you what though it makes me want to scratch that edge even more and and get into waterfowl (laughs) because it looks fun as shit (laughs) yeah Look, it is, but you're exactly right, man. It doesn't matter what camp you're at. And I talk, I talk about this a lot, you know, with people. It's like Louisiana's consult, considered, well, our license plate says it. I don't know if it's considered the sportsman's paradise. But I like to believe that no matter where you are in America, no matter what your pursuit, you have your own little sportsman's paradise. And on your dear property at that camp, when all those people come to it, and whether you're not usually shooting deer, you got some 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 sockle in the local pond, or maybe you're walking the woods with a 22 little air rifle uh, to you know, shoot squirrels. Like 
that's your sportsman's paradise. It doesn't need to be in Louisiana. You don't need to have better go catch red snapper 30 miles offshore to have a sportsman's paradise. Your paradise is what you grew up with and what you love, what you connect with. And, um, you know, I think, again, that's just part of the relatability of the show. That camp is nothing special. That though we shoot ringnecks, couple some canvasbacks in late season, some blue wing teal when the migration's right. But 90% of the birds we shoot are ringnecks, which are kind of like we love to eat. We eat the heck out of them, but it's not like a trophy bird. You know what I mean? Uh, they don't do it with calling and decoying and stuff like that. It's pass shotting, uh, pass shooting, and and that's that. But like we don't care because that that camp and that group of guys and just getting to go out in the morning. Like that's what we care about. Um, and the fact that we have birds is just a plus. Uh, and that's what I mean. It's just when we get out of the, and I tell, again, I'll tell every new hunters, like you're going to have bad years, no matter what your pursuit is, you know, you're going to have just like bucks that just aren't nice to shoot, you know, that you're going to have to wait a couple years to get mature. You're going to have birds and bad migrations and weather and short stopping with bad weather and hurricanes that are going to blow feed out of, out of, out of ponds. That happens to Louisianians every other year. Um, and what's going to keep you going back for it is the people you do it with. And, you know, as long as that's a strong group and you got, you know, you got your, your kind of like your North star, you know what I mean? That's what keeps you on the path. Yeah, so you mentioned the ducks not being you not shooting ninety percent ringnecks. I kind of have two two things I wanted to go with. That was one in one of the episodes you guys talked about how the the ducks changed from when you guys were growing up to yeah. what they are now. Yeah. And then secondly, it reminded me that I forget what you call coot. You guys have a Cajun word for it. Pool do. Pool do. And I growing up in Western New York, you you couldn't even consider pulling the trigger at that because the old guys would, it's just not, it's just not a thing. Don't even consider it. They're trash and you guys are shooting and eating them. So that's probably a faster answer. If you could give me that is like, so you guys, do you, will you intentionally target those and. Oh yeah. A lot. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, in Louisiana, if once the, once you get a sense of the morning that it's not going to turn out to be a very productive Duck hunt, you you start targeting pool do. Um, okay. And, you know, I've heard that over and over and over again, the same story you heard about living in Western New York. I hear through Oklahoma, California, um, Texas, you name it. I think it has something to do with the feed. Uh, where okay. we shoot pool so do. regionally? Yeah. I, I, I've i never eaten a pool do outside of Louisiana. I, okay. I don't know this for a fact. What I know is that any gadwall or gray duck, as we call them, any widgeon, any teal, any ringneck, any pool dew, they're all eating the same grass in that marsh. That and that's that's what that's what holds them there all season. That's what holds all those birds there all season. And um, I mean, you can tell like the pool dew are for the most part are the birds that are eating eating that grass all the way out to where it makes ducks change, you know, okay. ponds yep. depending on how thick that feed is. So, um, you know, there's some old timers like my buddy, Jay, his, his father-in-law will tell him, Hey, you know, I don't care about the ducks. Can you bring me back some pool dude? Cause he likes to chicken fry them. Like he oh, wow. likes to breast them out and fry them like chicken. That's what he does. And, and I love, I mean, we, again, it's one of those things where access to Louis, you know, access to the outdoors of Louisiana growing up in a very culinary rich history. You kind of take it all for granted. Pool do. We all ate them. We all hunted them. We all shot them. We all have made multiple different Cajun dishes with them. And honestly, until I started really hunting outside Louisiana, I didn't know that was even a thing, not eating them. You know what I mean? So, um, as far as ringnecks go, they're like the only bird that we still shoot that has like a nice fat cap on them. You know, teal are pretty slim by then. Widgeon and gray ducks, they, st- you know, they have this, that, that just kind of skin membrane. Canvasbacks will have a nice cap on them, but we like little, we like the ringnecks, call them butterballs. Uh, they look like footballs flying through the air, but, um, you know, they got that round diver body and they just collect a good fat morsel on top of that breast. And so, you know, we do a lot of stuff with that. 
as, as, long, as well as render that breast that that fat out to make to make roux instead of you know you can make a roux for a gumbo with that fat instead of using butter or oil or something like that. So it's one of those ducks that um, we we can get that supply from why we really like them. And I think to a certain extent, you probably have more of a say in this than I do being somebody who actually cooks for a living. But you hear all these stories from people about you can't, you know, don't kill, you know, an animal that weighs this much or like, you know, cooed or bad. And like so, some people where I'm from will shoot ringnecks. But they'll also say that, you know, a good chef will say you can make a good meal out of anything. Um, and like, our, you know, our president of the company here, Luke, he, he spent some time in, in Georgia and I, I live there as well too. And they tell you, you know, you shoot a boar over 150 pounds is trash. And like, he made it his mission. Like I'm going to figure out how to eat these things. And, and you can, and you can, you just, you just got to yeah. prepare them the right way. Yeah. I think that's true with, you know, I just think that's true with any, I think a lot of those things are just generational kind of unwritten rules that are just bound to be broken at some point. You know, I can understand like not shooting a certain deer or a certain size because you've been, you know, watching them on trail cams for the last two years and waiting for them to get to that eight point or that mature eight point or so on. There's there obviously that the whole the whole boar thing, you know, especially the invasive ones uh, like in that run wild in Texas. I mean, there, there's certain like there's more health things to do deal with them than it is like not better um, like eat them. But I will say like a boar that is full of testosterone and is like doing its thing during that time of year, they do have some funkiness to them that, you know, a fat sow just does not have. I mean, uh, again, that's being a product of your environment. That's, you know, chemicals running through your veins and meat and organs and so on and so forth. That's making it do that really has nothing to do with the pig itself just has to do with the nature that it's in and, and the product and being a product of its own environment. Uh, uh, to that point, like the Venice boar shoot, like those pigs, unlike any pig that I've ever eaten here in Texas. And I think that has a lot to do with the fertile vegetation that it, that it eats around the Delta of the Mississippi river. It's, it's just, it's just flooding silt from all over the country. And then that Delta and it grows like just very rut, lush, lush, rich vegetation. That pork is I've never had anything like it. I don't know if they're related or not. I'm not a biologist and I really, I don't give a shit, but they taste <laughs> real good. So, um, you know, like it's, um, it's, it's just one of those things. I think a lot of stuff we talk about like in pool to general, man, that's just generation after generation saying, don't you dare shoot that. And nobody ever really giving it a shot. Maybe, but maybe there is something to it about when you're in Arkansas for some reason or Missouri, they just taste different. I'm willing to accept that as a possible answer for now because I've never tasted one for myself. But um, that would be my my two cents on that, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot one. I mean, next I, I see them all the time in New York. I'm gonna I will shoot one and figure Little it out. Quarterback. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm gonna shoot twelve the first day, but. Well, uh, yeah, we are, I mean, I'm a unbelievably huge fan of your duck camp dinner series and it came out last year at a fortuitous time. It did an awesome job showing a, you know, a different part of the country, a different type of hunting for me. So it was like new, different content, right? There's so many like deer hunting shows and like, there's a lot of the same stuff out there. Right. And you still get that camp and that camaraderie that we've been talking about, but I've never experienced it where you get in a boat at a boat launch and then you rip down these Mm. black waters and you get in this, you know, your camp on is on stilts and like that floating, not even. Yeah. That it literally flows. Yeah. See, I never experienced anything like that. And I think that's what I love so much about your show is it's, it's new for probably for a lot of your viewers. Right. And not, I would say not the majority of people get to get to hunt and experience that way. And, what, you know, with this whole endeavor, what do you think has been, what has been the most fun or the most rewarding part of filming and, you know, all of the aspects that you're involved in with regards to duck camp dinners? What have you enjoyed the most? Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, a, a portion of me that feels indebted to the state, feels like I owe that state so much of my, all the good memories of my childhood, the hunting with my dad, the friends that I made. And, um, I've always wanted to shine a light on it because I feel like there's a lot of media 
I'm not saying like, you know, Swamp People or Duck Dynasty. There's certainly people like that that exist in Louisiana. There's certainly people that go gator hunt. There's certainly people that make duck calls. There's certainly, you know, that whole exists. But I wanted to speak to the broader range of Louisianians and, and represent them proudly. And that's what we aim to do with season one and two. And I think we did that really well. And, you know, I'm not, I don't just know that because I believe that I know that because again, in the comment sections, I, in every text message and direct message and email through my website, I hear it over and over and over again, not just from Louisianians that live in the state, but ones that have moved outside of the state and just miss home reminded them of doing that with their uncle back when they were a kid and having duck hunted in 30 years, people that are getting back into duck hunting that are from Louisiana that hasn't because they live in Kentucky and they don't know. And they're, but they're, now they're getting plugged into the community. Um, to me, that's like job well done, Jean-Paul. Like if you make no money or never do another duck camp dinners ever, you accomplish something that you set out to do. And that was to make this group of people really proud um, so I think that's one of the greatest joys that I've been able to do. And it's also like, you know, shine a light and memorializing this place that I love, this camp that I love. So, so now I'm, I'll have these, you know, what at the time, once it f gets finished, 14 episodes around this camp and around these group of friends and all these things we do. My thing is, is just, I think there are hundreds, if not thousands more camps like this all around the country pursuing different wildlife with a different set of friends, with a different food culture, and that they don't even know that their story is cool to tell, you know, but I really think thousands exist um, throughout the country. And I think that's where our next steps are as we look at the, at the long path of duck camp dinners is that we really believe that no matter what the pursuit, no matter what the state, there's people just like us. And I think that what I'd like to do is go into these different regions uh, of the country, whether that's Texas as a whole or California as a whole, or maybe it's the Chesapeake Bay area and do a whole season based on one place. So you can really dig in to that, to that culture, to those people, to that pursuit. And because I don't think you can do anything like what we did in duck camp dinners with just one episode somewhere. It doesn't matter what show, whether that's meat eater or old Phil Robertson shows or any, or any show on YouTube is like, you can't really get a good sense of what a Missouri deer hunt feels like, looks like, smells like, tastes like with one episode. You know, you get just a tiny little glimpse of it. And uh, we wanted to tell just a broader, bigger story that no matter where you're from, you can be proud of. Uh, again, I hope, I think we did that. And we're going to kind of, we're going to continue doing that, whether it's Louisiana or, or, or else. Yeah, you y'all have done that. You've done it incredibly effectively. You tell a story. You there's there's setup, and then there's so much plot, and then you know everything comes together. And I think that's a fantastic idea. It's not my invite to give, but you should come to Deer Camp at Perry's Farm next time because in the early episodes when you're, like there's just so much that's relatable. Yeah. Like your buddy who was hungover when he went out the next morning, <laughs> like. I've been that guy with Perry pig hunting in, in Florida. I thought I was going to die. Is that where you're at? Yeah. Perry, Florida? No. Uh, but... Yeah. We, uh, my family farms up in Southwestern Virginia, but we did a, we did a, a trip down to Florida earlier this, this year, back in the spring. And, and, uh, man, it was, uh, it was a pig hunt and it was, you know, we were all out of our element, but it was yeah. the same, you know, a lot of the same group of guys just meeting up in Florida to, to shoot some pigs. And, and it was, it was the same thing, man. It wasn't at our, family yeah. camp but it was that same it was that exact I same did atmosphere it too big night one just like you said in the narration that's that how your buddy did you <laughs> said you it did goes. it too big night one and i was like son of a bitch that's me and uh, <laughs> i just love it it's so relatable and i think that's exactly what y'all are doing and you know i love when your buddies are like giving you shit while you're cooking and they're telling you what you should be doing differently or like you know oh you put the onions in too early or like you you know it's it's just the yeah. best it's so relatable so you know yeah. thanks for putting out such, a, such an awesome uh yeah. piece of art for people to consume it's it's cool it's well, look awesome. man i think that I, personally i think we have done the industry has done way before i was even born just not a great job of telling the complete story i think we've told at best half of it and that includes you know, the pursuit, the stalk, the setup, the kill, and boom, that's it. 
And I think there's just a whole bunch. There's a lot of stuff that comes before that. And then a whole bunch of stuff that comes after that. And if we were, I think the time is now to tell those stories and you see them, you know, you see them in places like dirty jobs that show dirty jobs. You saw it with like Bourdain's um, show with no reservations. And, you know, we want, you know, we want to see the kill and we want to see that. That's kind of the climax in, in those scenes, if you will. Those shots, there's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to get away from that. But we believe that's five minutes or six minutes of a 25-minute show, frankly. Like, we look at it like that. We look at it as four five-minute sections or five four-minute sections with some transitions and cuts and, B, and B-roll and voiceover that ties all that in together. But really, the hunt, it's 25% of the show. Uh, and it's everything else that comes with it. You know, we talk about it as like, you know, we want to understand the food culture, the history, these camps and these people through the pursuits, through these wild pursuits, through these ducks and deer and so on. It's not the other way around. We're kind of get to learn everything about this place through what we're hunting. And no, because that's kind of what's bringing us to this place, but it's not all that makes up this place. And, um, that's why like and so we've really tried to take that fresh approach to how to shoot call it a hunting show call it a cooking show call it a lifestyle show i'm not sure it fits any one of those it kind of has has a little bit of all of that but um you know i think again it's just it it casts a broad net you know it that's and that's the goal we want to talk to as many people as possible so if we're just out to shoot a whitetail or shoot a pile of ducks we're actually you know pigeonholing ourselves to just 950,000 duck stamp owners, you know? Right. Um, we think it's a lot bigger story than that. We think it's millions and millions and millions of eyes, not, not, you know, a hundred thousand views. We think that's just the very, very, very tip of, of the iceberg there. Absolutely. And it's a noble, uh, mission and, you know, we appreciate what you're doing and, you know, three fans right here. We, we appreciate it. We're going to keep watching duck camp dinners and supporting you along the way. And, you know, uh, I know you got a little one you got to go put down. Um, I can hear him so, in the background. <laughs> yeah. So, Chef, uh, where can uh, where can folks find you on social media? What do you got going on? Where can we check out Duck Camp Dinners? Yeah. So uh, you can find me at Chef Jean underscore Paul. That's Chef J-E-A-N underscore Paul on Instagram. Shoot me a message. Give me a follow. If you got some questions about cooking, I'm happy to try to re- uh, answer them and help you through those things. You can find um, season one and two currently on Meat Eaters, YouTube, um, YouTube, um, I guess YouTube site. What do you Channel. call it? YouTube page. Um, and uh, right now, episode five of eight episodes just dropped today. It's the last one in Venice. And you got a whole season uh, before this season to check out if you haven't watched it. And so you can check out Meat Eaters YouTube page. We drop an episode every Friday at noon. And after this episode, you got three more. So for those who haven't watched, you got some catching up to do and more. Stay tuned. More info as as the weeks and months go on about what the future of Duck Camp Dinners looks like moving forward, too. Fantastic. Well, we'll be watching and supporting closely. And uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for jumping on here. And we really appreciate it, Chef. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Let's do it again. Then we can elongate and have more talk about duck hunting and and cooking and stuff like that. (laughs) Oh, we're in, man. We're in. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it so much. Have a nice night.